Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by Tomas Junot. It's been a while since we've had the opportunity to speak, and I thought we should perhaps have a conversation uh, given that there's been a lot of developments in the last year in the Middle East, and of course, we have the new Biden administration. So, uh, Tomas, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So we were kind of chatting a little bit before this, and my question to you was, what is the extent to which Canada's relations with the Middle East overall is really defined by U.S. relations in the Middle East? With the last four years of the Trump administration, we can see that when you have an, an administration that's perhaps a little less typical than what's been there in the past, it actually can have a serious impact on Canada's relations with the Middle East. So does the Biden administration mean there's going to be more of a return to normalcy, or are there just new factors in the Middle East that are going to shape Canada's relations in that area? I mean, that's a tough question to answer, because in, as with other things related to the U.S. and the transition from Trump to Biden, some things change, but there's also a lot of continuity. So when, when we think about Canadian policy in the Middle East, what's changed and what's not changed since Biden came in. There's a bit of both. Some things have not changed. Canada remains a marginal player in the Middle East. Our ability to influence events on the ground remains very limited. Our interests in the region remain limited. Our trade uh, with countries in the region remains limited. All of that hasn't changed. And, and it was like that before Trump, during Trump, and it will remain like that. And that being said, there are some things that have a very concrete impact in going from Trump to Biden. One obvious example, just to take something that's really tangible on a day-to-day -day basis, is the likelihood of a direct confrontation between the U.S. and Iran, i.e. a military confrontation spiraling, even if it's not to, you know, on a very large scale, at least some, you know, airstrikes or things like that. That has decreased in terms of its likelihood. That has a direct uh, impact on Canada because we have troops in Iraq. We have troops in Kuwait that support these troops in Iraq. You know, if, if, if or when tension goes up between the U.S. and Iran, and for example, Iran-backed Shia militias in Iraq lob missiles on American bases or bases that host American troops and possibly Canadian troops, we can be targeted. We're collateral damage. You know, the, these Shia-backed, these Iran-backed militias in, in Iraq, they're not targeting the Canadians, but we may be there. So if the likelihood of, of that kind of tension decreases, that doesn't disappear, but decreases, that has an impact on us and a very tangible one. So you know, we could go on and give a lot of other examples, but I think it's, it's you know, it's a lot of things don't change from Trump to Biden. Some things do change, uh, and that being a specific example. So that speaks to the Biden administration as well. But do you think certain factors on the ground have now permanently changed the, the character of the Middle East, the people involved, some of the, you know, we're seeing in some ways a realignment with all these new kind of peace agreements between Israel and, and some of its neighbors is that also changing things uh, for Canada, kind of irrespective of the United States? You're absolutely right that a lot of things have been changing in the Middle East in, in recent years and decades. And, and to some extent, in some ways, that does reduce the already limited margin of maneuver that a country like Canada has or had in the past. One example, which doesn't cover everything that you, you, you raise in your question, but I think one useful example is the issue that so many Canadians uh, love to talk about so much, which is mediation or being an honest broker. A lot of Canadians exaggerate or romanticize the extent to which Canada has done that in the past, but it has happened in some instances. But the space for a country like Canada to do that today has really shrunk. When there's a dispute in the Middle East in search of a mediator, which of course happens very regularly, very few people think about Canada anywhere near the top of their list. 
And not only do they think about other Western countries, think about Norway or Switzerland in some cases, but more importantly, and this is where the region has changed a lot, when there's a need for a mediator between the US and Iran, it's not Canada or Norway, it's Oman or Qatar. Oman and Qatar, Kuwait also, they play this role of mediator between the US and Iran, inside Lebanon, inside Yemen, and in many other cases. So that, you know, that's that's only one very specific set of, of action that Canada can have in the Middle East, but it's one area where changes in the region, i.e. the growing agency of small and mid-sized players, has really reduced the already small space for Canada. So that's a really interesting context for some of the questions I have today. And I just kind of want to start drilling down on some of the recent developments that we've seen. So maybe we should start with with Saudi Arabia. And, you know, I think there's a lot of attention focused on this with Biden and what he would do in the first few weeks, because during the campaign, he was taking an extremely hard line against Saudi Arabia. I think he referred to MBS as, you know, responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who is, of course, a Washington Post columnist, and he was a famous commentator on Middle Eastern affairs. And Really, we didn't see Biden do that much. He released a report that was written in 2018 by the U.S. intelligence community, which basically says, yes, that, that, that Jamal Khashoggi was killed on behalf of, and the mission was approved by Mohammed bin Salman. But really, other than sanctioning 17 Saudi citizens, Biden decided not to do anything. And I think this came to the disappointment of a lot of people who were expecting some kind of action given everything that he had said during the election campaign. So I was wondering, like, you know, famously you're, you're a realist and, and so the idea of interests here are at play, but at some point, you know, your values can become part of your interests as well and part of the image that you're showing to the world. So I'd be really interested in your response to what happened there. Well, I think there's two ways of seeing that. Uh, one level is how candidates of any stripe become mugged by reality when they uh, arrive in office, and B, specifically on Biden, who he is and what his uh, worldview is. So on the first level, which is being mugged by reality, candidate Biden probably, and I'm assuming, and as many people do assume is the case, he was trying to please the more activist or progressive base of the Democratic Party, which throughout 2020 really focused a lot on, on Saudi Arabia in general, the Khashoggi assassination, the war in Yemen. So there was a lot of momentum for that. So candidate Biden had to throw red meat at his base on the progressive side and, for example, described Saudi Arabia as a pariah state, which is, which is a very strong word. Now, President Biden, you know, arrives in office in January and then obviously acting on the basis of what he said during the campaign becomes extremely difficult. A, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have a very close partnership. Um, it's a very costly partnership. It's a flawed partnership. It's an imperfect one, but it is one that is uh, deeply institutionalized with entrenched interests on both sides and also that brings some benefits to the U.S. These benefits come with costs, but there are real benefits so a President Biden that has a full domestic agenda, that has a full foreign policy agenda, climate change, China, et cetera, keeping in mind the pandemic, post-pandemic recovery, polarization at home, he's trying to at least disengage a bit from the Middle East to make major moves towards Saudi Arabia would be very costly, come with massive unintended consequences. You know, the idea that the U.S. can just, you know, create a firewall between itself and Saudi Arabia and, and walk away it just doesn't work like that. I mean, it can work like that in a policy memo for a think tank, but not, not in the real world. So 
the way I read what Biden has done, and this is where I think it is actually consistent with the second level I was bringing up, which is his worldview, is, is he's an incrementalist. Uh, he's a realist to some extent, but he's not, he's not a revolutionary. He's not a radical. He's a very cautious and pragmatic individual. So what he's chosen to do with Saudi Arabia is, is this mushy middle ground, which of course will antagonize people either on the left or on the right or on the Hakish or the dovish side, but is a safe, easy solution with creating some distance with regards to Saudi Arabia, sanctioning other individuals, but not MBS. He's done a couple other things too. I mean, it took him a long time before calling the leader of Saudi Arabia. He called the king, not MBS, who's the crown prince, therefore not officially his counterpart. He's also stopped offense support for offensive Saudi operations in the war in Yemen, right? So these are, these are more than symbolic moves, but they're not the major moves that some people on the progressive side had expected. He's continuing defensive support for Saudi operations in the war in Yemen, right? Which is which is an uneasy compromise, but it's it's you know more or less in the middle. So yeah, I want to talk more about the Yemen conflict in, in just a little bit. I guess in your mind, if Biden had taken stronger steps, and it's never easy to do a counterfactual, but if Biden had taken stronger s- steps, let's say he had put sanctions on MBS or I don't, I don't know if you can actually put out a warrant for the sitting head of state, but if you had taken these kinds of, you know, more stronger actions, what do you think the consequences of that would be? Well, you know, I mean, we could talk about the consequences specifically on the war in Yemen afterwards, because I think there's a really interesting discussion to have at that level. But generally speaking, you know, the, the, not to, to go for too long in the history of the relationship, but the fundamental bargain between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia dating from the 1940s is Uh, stability of oil supply in exchange for security. Of course, that doesn't mean the U.S. importing Saudi oil. The U.S. has never imported a lot of Saudi oil, and it imports even less now. But that's not what the deal is. The deal is stability of oil supply to world markets, because Saudi Arabia is the swing producer. It is, with Russia and the U.S., the largest producer, et cetera, et cetera. It is definitely in the U.S. interest to have Saudi Arabia on its side, to understand it, to have channels of communication open to it, to have abilities to pressure it, to negotiate with it, to talk to Saudi Arabia. So, of course, nobody is talking about, well, some people are, but that, that's extreme, about making Saudi Arabia an enemy. But because Saudi Arabia is such an important country in the Middle East, there is a very clear U.S. interest in keeping it close, in keeping a close partnership, primarily based on the oil versus security deal, but now having expanded to other, other aspects like counterterrorism cooperation. That is an absolutely flawed bargain because it comes with a proximity to a a state that is that does so many things that go against American and Canadian, for that matter, values. The counterterrorism part of the of that deal is is paradoxical to say the least, because we're working with Saudi Arabia on counterterrorism, while we know that other actions that Saudi Arabia do have over the decades created a lot of the oxygen that has you know terrorism in the region. So yes, it is a contradiction. No, it's not completely consistent. But you know, foreign policy rarely is. So kind understanding that that's. The, the, the big picture for the U.S. to create too much distance in its relationship with Saudi Arabia would mean that, yes, you would probably reduce some of the costs associated with the partnership, but you'd also reduce those gains. Uh, so it's not clear to me that major movements to create massive distance between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia lead to a better cost-benefit ratio. It's not because the cost-benefit ratio today is not great that by creating distance, you actually gain something. So I agree with the idea of, of slowly, incrementally, you know, distancing the U.S. and Canada, for that matter, from Saudi Arabia. But I think that more than incremental movement, as distasteful as it is, carries a lot of risk. 
And, you know, kind of maybe speaking to your point, I, I don't think we should pretend that MBS is getting off scot-free. I mean, this is a this is an individual who tried to portray himself as someone as as a reformer, forward-thinking, revolutionary. Talked about green energy, has all these kinds of crazy city projects in, in in Saudi Arabia, and that a lot of that's kind of been put on hold, right? A lot of those things have been, you know, the, like the, his his image, I think, is is kind of irreparably damaged. I would say at least for the medium term, if not the long term, and you know, so how do you think he's reacting? To, well, I know you're not a mind reader. I know you're not in the, the Saudi court right now. But like, what do you think the implications of all this are for him? The fact that, OK, you're not being explicitly condemned, but there's a clear and open attempt to back away from you and that you're not going to have this image of this reforming enlightened prince that perhaps you once wanted to have. So just first on, on the issue of the image of the reformist prince, of course, Saudi PR Saudi hired lobbyists in Washington and other Western capitals uh, pushed that narrative very hard. I think it's not a yes or no thing. Was that narrative exaggerated? Absolutely. Completely 100%. Is it completely devoid of reality? No, it's not. MBS is a brutal autocrat. He, you know, dismembered a dissident, literally. But he has also, and that's also true, and these don't have to be mutually exclusive things. It is absolutely true that he is trying to push hard uh, for social and economic reforms in Saudi Arabia. It's been only four years now that he's been the crown prince, six years that he's been uh, de facto, you know, probably the most powerful man in Saudi Arabia. That's actually a short time to, to massively change a, a, a country as he is trying to. So, and, and as, as a number of people have pointed out, uh, these reforms, the social one, the economic ones, are in the U.S. interest. They're in the Canadian interest for that matter. So the idea that, that you can try to work with MBS in those areas where he is pushing reforms that are in the American or Canadian or European interest is not a bad idea, given that he is likely to be the ruler of Saudi Arabia, perhaps for the next 50 years, right? He's 35. His father is in his 80s. His uncles have all died in their 80s and 90s. Genetically, he could easily be there for 50 or 60 years. So the calculus that, yes, you can uh, that, that you can try to pressure him into, into changing at least a bit. Is it going to work? Probably not as much as I would want or as many other people would want, but it's not clear that there's a better alternative. Is it going to work? I don't know. We'll see. The, 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 the glass half empty argument is that no, it's not working. Look at what he's been doing to dissidents uh, in Canada and elsewhere post Khashoggi, which is true, absolutely valid. The glass half full argument is that, you know, he is continuing on, on at least some of his social and economic reforms, not the political ones, to be very clear. There are no real political reforms. And he, you know, on the foreign policy front, is it working? I don't know. That's, I think, one is where the jury is out there. There was kind of a peak of MBS crazy in, in 2016, 17, 18. You know, the blockade on Qatar, the dispute with Canada, the war in Yemen, et cetera. Some of that has toned down, but it's still there. So we'll see in the future how, how it evolves. So that actually raises another kind of, area of questions I wanted to ask. And to be honest, I could, I could talk about this all day. It's just endlessly fascinating. But the issue of dissidents, both within Saudi Arabia and outside uh, Saudi Arabia. So MBS has released now from prison a small number of high-profile activists. They are 
still under house arrest, I believe, but they're no longer in the kind of jail conditions they were once in. And, and, you know, and that's important because criticizing the arrest of some of those activists is what actually led to the Saudi spat back in 2018. So, so there's an implication for Canada there. So that's one area where we're seeing maybe a little bit of change on the dissident front, not a lot, but I guess my concern with letting MBS off, if, if that's what we can describe it as, uh, with regards to the Khashoggi killing, is I do worry about the impact on dissidents elsewhere. And in the Canadian media in the last two months, there's been a number of stories about I don't know if dissidence is always the right word. There's a number of uh, there's Saudi officials who are here who are definitely complicit in a lot of the, 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 the human rights abuses that we saw earlier on. So we shouldn't make all these people out to be victims. But there was a case of a Saudi official. There's a case of a Saudi student in Canada who was a dissident and now has gone back to Saudi Arabia and suddenly started tweeting very pro MBS things and leaving a lot of people shrugging as to what's actually happened here. So all this to say is that we have seen a little bit of progress and, and, and by little, I mean very little on the uh, domestic side with regards to the dissidents there. I do worry that, you know, maybe Biden pushing this Khashoggi thing away in the hopes of, of just kind of settling things down means that it could be open season on dissidents and other officials in countries like Canada. So you are absolutely correct that the, the moves by Saudi Arabia in recent weeks to quote unquote release some activists is at best cosmetic. And I'm not even sure that it qualifies as cosmetic gestures because, yes, in some cases, like Lujan Al Hatlul, a, a women's rights activist, uh, she was released from jail, but she's under house arrest now. So it's a bit less uncomfortable, but she is not free and she cannot leave Saudi Arabia. She can barely leave her own home. It is very clear that these moves by Saudi Arabia were, were meant uniquely to appease the incoming Biden administration, to try to deflect uh, some of the criticism that it knew was coming. Uh, and that its hope, and it seems to be working, is that by only making these limited gestures, it can, it can at least reduce the pressure. Uh, and it, it seems to be working. That is, is broadly consistent with what we were saying in the previous question, which is, yes, MBS in some ways has implemented or is trying to implement real social and economic reform, but not on the political front. He's not a reformer at all. If anything, things are even more repressive in Saudi Arabia under him. He is willing to open things up on the social and economic side, but the message is very clearly, I want to keep control. And anybody who wants to, to try to fill some of that space on the political level will be squeezed uh, very hard. What does it mean in terms of dissidents? Uh, that's, a, that's a really important question. And uh, some of the news that we've seen in recent weeks uh, are, are not good. And they suggest that at the very least, Saudi Arabia under MBS will not moderate at that level. Is it actually getting worse or still stay, staying as bad as it used to be remains to be seen. You know, Saudi Arabia has a long tradition of going after dissidents abroad. It started before MBS and continues under him. It's not something that started just recently, but there's a good case to be made that it's intensified. We've seen cases in Canada. You are correct to say that some individuals in Canada uh, are not dissidents in the classical sense. They are members, high-ranking members of the regime who fell out with MBS, fled the country, and are now being targeted. They need to be protected because they are human beings in this country, but they shouldn't be labeled as, as dissidents. The one case that you mentioned, Ahmed al-Harbi, is a, is a fascinating one uh, because he was a, a relatively well-known dissident in the community here, fairly active online. And then he had an audience at the Saudi embassy here in Ottawa and basically, long story short, ended up in Saudi Arabia a few days later. And since then, his Twitter account 
maybe not with him writing it, but has been tweeting pro MBS stuff. Uh, that has definitely sent a chill in the in the uh, dissident community. Is is the Biden approach encouraging or feeding that by MBS? Yes, to some extent, and I think it would be it would be inaccurate to pretend the opposite. Uh, it will be less bad than under Trump. I think that's clear because under Trump there was most definitely a carte blanche towards MBS. Generally speaking, Biden is trying to to, to tighten that a bit, to pressure that a bit. Will it have a major impact? No, I don't think it will, which is very unfortunate. But could it have a small impact? Yes, at that level, I think that is plausible, but but not more than that. But ultimately, you know, I think whatever the U.S. does, Saudi Arabia will go after dissidents. You know, we, we tend to, to view things in the West very much from a U.S.-centric way. If the U.S. does something, it will have an impact. If the U.S. doesn't do something, it's because, it, you know, something bad happens because the U.S. didn't do anything or the reverse. It's not always about the U.S., right? Whatever the U.S. does, MBS will go after dissidents. That's a really interesting point. And I hadn't really thought of, of the Saudi Arabia going after dissidents pre-MBS. I don't think it, it received perhaps the same amount of news coverage as it does now. But I also just want to give a shout out to Doug Kwan at the Toronto Star, who's been doing a really interesting job covering all this stuff and um, looking forward to, well, maybe not looking forward is probably the wrong word, but I'll be interested to see uh, where this, this reporting goes because we often think of, you know, when we think of foreign influence, we often think of, of China and Russia, but clearly Saudi Arabia is, is making waves in this space. There are weird stories from the pre-MBS era of Saudi princes in exile in Switzerland and in London and elsewhere in European capitals uh, living in five-star hotels uh, suddenly disappearing and, and resurfacing in Saudi Arabia or just never resurfacing at all. So, you know, not going to go into the details now, but that this kind of thing happened before. But clearly it happens more now. Well, that's 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 a grim note upon which to then move to perhaps my final question on, on at least Saudi, which is, you know, given everything we just said, are there any prospects for improvements in relations between Canada and Saudi Arabia? Or have we already been seeing a, a, a gradual improvement just in by having kind of a, a certain level of calm? So I think the second part of your question is important in the sense that that relations between Canada and Saudi Arabia are, you know, I refer to it as a frozen conflict in, in the sense that the two sides kind of accept it as, as it is, and there's little motivation on either side to change it. On the Canadian side, you know, politically, I do not see any benefit for the Trudeau government to invest in re reconciliation with Saudi Arabia. Any effort in that way would bring back much unwanted attention on the light armored vehicles deal. The, tr the Trudeau government just wants to stay as far away as it can from that. On the Saudi side, you know, the Canadian case is, is an example that MBS wants to use with European and other Western countries. You criticize us and we will react. The days of kicking us while we're down are gone. So for him, uh, to maintain that dispute uh, carries a very low cost, uh, virtually no cost, uh, and allows them to, to maintain that, that argument, that, that quote-unquote threat to, to Western countries. Uh, plus, domestically, it plays well that he's you know, not letting Saudi Arabia be thrown around. So on both sides, I see little incentive to, to politically or diplomatically to try to change that. Keeping in mind that relations between Canada and Saudi Arabia are not dead. There are still embassies in, in each country. The embassies are open, led by a number two. Trade has been affected, but it is not down to zero. So, right, relations do continue in, in, on some fronts. Not every front, as in the pre-2018 era, but some fronts. The only way that I see a change in the short to midterm, 
uh, and it's not a guarantee, but it's the only scenario I see is if we have an election in Canada, whether it's this year or next year or whenever, and the Conservatives come to power, and then the Conservatives could potentially, it would not be their priority because they would have a pretty full plate, but they could potentially go to Saudi Arabia and tell them, hey guys, you know, let's kiss and make up and blame this on the Liberals. And this is something that on both sides would make perfect sense. The, the Conservatives would be able to say, you know, we are actually standing up for Canada and, and, and patching up for the mistakes. And that's not me speaking, right? That's how the Conservatives could frame it. We are, you know, repairing the mistakes of the woke and moral grandstanding of the previous Liberal government. And on the Saudi side, they could just blame it on, on that previous government and, and agree to move on. For now, that's really the only way I, I, I see that happening. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting idea. I, I just I have to wonder. I like some of the rhetoric you also see from conservative MPs. I'm not. I'm also. Sometimes it can be just as equally harsh as, as what comes out of the liberal party. I, I just don't think. And and I don't know if there's Saudi officials listening. They're just not that popular. They're just not that. It's not. It's not something that I think Canada, Canadians are going to prioritize or rally around. So it, it might be in the the doldrums for some time. But you you've touched on kind of the the last issue, and it's a big issue that, you know, probably deserves it's all, you know, a podcast. And I think you have a podcast on this coming out. So, you know, we'll be sure to put it out on the Intrepid podcast Twitter feed once it does come out. But that is the conflict in Yemen. And of course, you, you've already mentioned it. And the fact is that Canada does have an arms deal with Saudi Arabia, despite everything that's happened. We are sending light armored vehicles to the region. And last fall, there was a report by the United Nations, which identified Canada as one of the countries sending arms to the conflict. Christian Freeland's response to that was that there's no credible evidence that any Canadian arms have been linked to human rights violations. And you can, you can make of that what you will. But other human rights activists have pointed out that Canada has sent a record amount of arms to that region in 2019. So I was wondering, just for our, our audience, could you give them maybe just a brief, and it's, it's a very painful thing to do, but a brief summary of where the war in Yemen is. It is a humanitarian catastrophe, of course, but, but where it's going. There's a lot of speculation that the Houthis are actually winning the conflict. And of course, what the arms deal, which is kind of the 800 pound gorilla in the room, I think, in, in this whole conversation, wh where that's at and, and what the implications are ahead. The Yemen war in, in two minutes is, 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 is not easy. But basically, you know, Yemen is a country that for uh, years and decades has suffered from instability, from hunger, from poverty, from, from mis misgovernance, etc. In the 90s and 2000s, a rebel group in the Northwest called the Houthis, their name comes from the family that leads that movement. They, that movement was born out of grievances in that area because they felt quite legitimately at first that they were being neglected politically and economically by the central government, that they were being marginalized culturally and religiously. They come from a separate uh, part of, of Islam, they're Zaydis. And then, you know, in the 2000s, that, 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 that actually becomes a violent uh, insurgency. There are uh, six rounds of war. 2011 comes, it's the Arab uprisings that lead to the uh, overthrow of the 30-year president in Yemen, Ali Abdel Saleh. And uh, then there's a few years of instability, 2012 to 14, where there's a, a, a UN-backed process to try to come up with a new constitution and national reconciliation. There are some reasons to be hopeful during some of those uh, months. But then in 2014, everything collapses. The Houthis, who took advantage of those years of instability to continue growing, they take the 
capitals. And uh, really, that's where the world realizes, you know, a handful of Yemen watchers outside Yemen had seen that, but the world realizes that oh, these, these, this, this group is, is, is big and it's ambitious. And the Houthis have ties to Iran. At that time, they're still limited, but they are there and they're growing. Saudi Arabia, who always feels concerned, rightly so, generally speaking, with instability uh, from Yemen, because it's on its, you know, vulnerable, soft underbelly, um, decides to intervene militarily at the head of a coalition to try to knock the Houthis out of Sana'a and reinstate the government of, of President Hadi, who is backed by Saudi Arabia. And that basically is still where we are now. Six years later, actually six years almost exactly, because that the intervention started in late March 2015, the Houthis have been slowly gaining ground. They are slowly expanding the territory under their control. They are slowly building institutions in the areas they control. And, and yes, they are winning the war. Uh, they are far from controlling the country as a whole, but they are by far the most powerful actor in Yemen now. And that is where there is a, a huge uh, dilemma here, because the Houthis are absolutely brutal. They are increasingly theocratic in their governance. They are brutally corrupt and repressive, but they're winning. Uh, they control the capital. They control uh, most institutions in the country. They control most military force in the country. So it is really not obvious what can be done about that, especially, and I'll, I'll finish on that, in a context where the internationally recognized government of President Hadi is is corrupt, it's weak, it's incompetent, and it's it's fragmented. So there's no effective partner on the ground. I have to ask, like, why is this? This seems very surprising that a government that's that's backed up by many governments in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia, and who has given them, you know, you know, Saudi Arabia has a lot of military equipment. It has a substantial army, not perhaps, a, like, it's not the United States. It's not maybe in the, you know, top five, but it's not a small army. Why, why is it that the Houthis have, have been so successful in this campaign? Well, one article that I hope somebody will write in the next few years is a, a, a deep analysis of the Saudi military performance in Yemen uh, since 2015. It would be a hard article to write because it's hard to get data on that, but that performance has been uh, mediocre, which is depressing if you're the US because you have uh, sold uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of some of the most advanced weapon systems to Saudi Arabia over the decades. You have invested massively in the training of Saudi military officers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and yet that performance remains very, very poor. And that's why you realize that, you know, the, the technical aspect of, of, of war making is really only one small side to the story. You know, the Houthis are far more motivated, they are far better organized, uh, and they have the benefit of, of knowing and mastering the terrain, which, which the Saudis don't. And the Houthis, uh, in part through sheer brutality, but also through, you know, tactical alliance making, they have been able to make deals with uh, a number of actors in, in northern parts of Yemen, in some cases by coercing them, but in other cases by cajoling them, to build a, a machine, an alliance uh, that is the most uh, powerful today. And, you know, taking a step back years from now, the, the disastrous Saudi military performance in, in Yemen uh, will have a lot of implications. One thing that you can be sure of is that Iran, from Tehran, but also from Yemen, where they are now firmly entrenched, uh, they are sitting back eating popcorn and watching and studying the very poor Saudi military performance, which from Iran's perspective is very good news. Right. And, and just to be clear in, in, in remarking that, you know, like, well, why aren't they doing better? It's not, it's not to cheer them on. It's, it's, this is, it, it really is just such a brutal conflict with so many people um, starving and um, 
suffering as a result, but it is just, to me, it's just kind of shocking that, you know, that this turn of events that, you know, is that like you spend billions and billions of dollars on some of the world's best military equipment and to really kind of <laughs> not achieve your military objectives, as you say, does a lot to say for the non-technical aspects of, of warfare. And, and you're right. I would also like to read that article with, with that hopefully someone in the future will, will write. But this then brings us to Canada's role in this, which has often been highlighted in the Globe and Mail and among uh, certain human rights campaigners in Canada that you know we have been providing light armored vehicles to this conflict. And a lot of people, including I believe yourself, have uh, encouraged the government to at least pause the, the military deal going forward. So I was wondering, wh- what do you what do you make of, of this in recent developments? What is there any there doesn't really seem to be a a way out for the liberal government, which is perhaps why you said earlier in the podcast that they they don't want to talk about this <laughs> because there really isn't you know for a government that sees itself as is leading some kind of feminist foreign policy, whatever that means. They they really just haven't abided by any of that kind of principle. So, you know, wh- what will happen with this particular deal? Is it just, are we just, per- are we just kind of burying our heads in the sand and going, or plugging our ears and going la 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 and pretending it's not there? Pretty much, you know, uh, the, the deal is not very transparent. So we don't have the most up-to-date numbers in terms of how many vehicles have been delivered to Saudi Arabia. We actually don't even know exactly how many vehicles need to be delivered. The number changed at some point, but based on, on you know, reporting by CDC, by The Globe, by a few uh, people on Twitter, it seems that most of the vehicles have been delivered by now. So you know, by now, not much can be done anyways, whether you think that it should be completely canceled, that it should be suspended, or that Canada should bury its head, you know, put its heads on its its hands on its ears and sing, and just move on. By now, it's almost over, right? So that's, that's one point that that whether you agree or disagree with the deal, it's it's the reality by now. Clearly, I do not expect the Canadian government to sell more weapons to Saudi Arabia in the future, given not only the dispute since 2018, but given all the negative publicity around this deal, there won't be major deals. Small ones that get little attention, that's possible, but not major ones like this. And even under a conservative government, uh, hypothetically in the future, that would be hard a hard sell. Well, there's so much we could talk about with the Middle East. And I have actually got you to promise another podcast uh, coming up in the next few weeks just to talk about the Iran situation, because there's so many developments happening there, including uh, recent developments on the PS752 or the Ukrainian Airlines shoot down that occurred in January of 2020. But that will have to wait. I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge. And just as a, but as a, on a concluding note, you're on sabbatical right now. Do you want to pitch any of your products to the audience, what you're working on? Well, having a sabbatical is a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of different things. On the issue of Yemen, I have a couple of things that I'm finishing now. I published five years ago an article on Iran's policy in Yemen, and I'm finishing an update to that article, kind of a part two, that I'm hoping to finish in the early spring. And the other Yemen thing that I'm pretty much done with now, but that has to go through, you know, as it always does a whole series of, of editing rounds. I wrote a small book on Yemen uh, in French, uh, which which was interesting because it's only the second time that I that I that I publish in French since I I, I became an academic, and and it's basically a, a very short book that's an overview of the internationalization of the war in Yemen. So touching on some of the angles we we discussed, I'm actually not sure on the title yet. Uh, that's part of the discussions, but it. It's probably going to be, you know, le Yemen en guerre entre fragmentation et internationalisation, you know, Yemen at war between fragmentation and internationalization or something like that. That may be too many words uh, for the title, so we'll have to 
we'll have to figure that out. But that's the that's the theme. And then beyond the the Middle East, you know, I'm finishing a book, a co-edited book with the West and Amara Amersingham, in which you wrote uh, two chapters on the the uh, impact of the pandemic on the national security community. So that's uh, taking a bit of time right now. I'm finishing a co-edited book with Besma Momani on Canada and the Middle East, in which you co-wrote one of the chapters. Uh, so that uh, hopefully comes out in the fall. I'm sensing uh, you a and I. Yeah, you you and I uh, co-wrote a book on intelligence analysis in Canada, which took a lot of my time in the first half of the pandemic and and basically the you know all the fiddling with the production for the next few months. And then the other thing that I'm starting now, and I'll, I'll finish on that, but that is a lot of fun. I've been part of a SHIRK uh, grant with uh, Stéphanie Van Vlatki, Justin Massy, and Jonathan Paquin on allied military interventions. And you know, over the last few years, we've done separately or together a number of things, but the the big project to finish off that five-year grant is a book on the uh, U.S.-led coalition against the Islamic State and, uh, you know, intra-alliance dynamics and things like that. So I'm writing all the case studies on the Middle Eastern members of that coalition. So I'm, I'm working a bit on that now. So that's that's a lot of fun, too. Wow, that's no shortage of things that you're working on. So we'll be looking forward to all those, especially the things you co-authored with me. I mean, I, that's clearly the most important. But thank you so much, Tama, and I look forward to chatting soon. Thank you.